when we begin any Buddhist ceremony, we always um, start off by affirming our faith in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. We say we take refuge in the triple gem, whether it's taking the precepts, just in a house blessing or some ceremony in the monastery or whether it's in an ordination that's the starting point of the the ritual the ceremonial part of the ritual so it's a constant reflection for one living in the monastic life something to keep returning to what have I taken refuge in what is a refuge the Buddha the enlightened Buddha qualities of an enlightened mind, wisdom, compassion, purity, dhamma, truth, sangha, those who have realized truth. So in essence we are taking refuge in truth. The noble truth, Arya Satchadhamma, that brings beings to the end of suffering, to true peace. We're taking refuge in truth then, in the path, the teachings that lead to the realization of truth. <coughs> because we all aspire to peace, true happiness, and then we have some intuition that this path can lead us to that. But it's a path of investigating truth. Truth meaning in reality, the way things are. We're training ourselves to look for the truth of things, to examine our experience as human beings and come to some better or deeper understanding of truth which will help to free our minds from 
all forms of stress, suffering, and indeed free ourselves from the whole round of birth and death. So when we take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and the the path of practice, that means we commit to something, we bring up a sense of commitment. But that commitment, especially in the beginning, is like all other things, it's impermanent, it's uncertain. Sometimes we have strong commitment, sometimes weak commitment. So it's something something we have to keep coming back to. What inspires us to practice? What is the purpose of the practice? What is the point of it? as a way to keep bringing up commitment and to work with inevitable obstacles, difficulties that come up. In the beginning we have to put effort into learning the Dhamma, meaning we take time to listen to the Dhamma, study it uh, through discussion, hearing the Dhamma, discussing it maybe, and also reading. We have no other choice, we have to learn the road map for the practice, but not as an end in itself, as a useful, skillful means to support our practice. This they call the pariyati, the study of the Dhamma and Vinaya, the, the whole path of Buddhism. But that knowledge we gain is not yet the truth that the Buddha or enlightened sawakas, enlightened disciples of the Buddha realized. It's the description of truth, but it's still just the use of conventional language to paint a picture to help us to understand what we're doing. But it's still not that truth that we're seeking. So the difficulty is to actually bring our minds and hearts to penetrate truth and actually experience it, know it, not just with our memory, know the words, but actually to know it as it is.
And that comes through the patibhati. Taking that knowledge that we've heard and read and learnt and then applying it in daily life, in our daily practice and often over and over again. To actually bring up true knowledge or knowledge of truth rather than just the memory of of the way things are as described by others actually to know and see for oneself thereby to start to free one's mind from delusion and kilesa which cause it suffering only then through the patibhati will we reach patiweti patiweta the realization of that truth that the Buddha was pointing to. One of the problems is also we hear the Dhamma over and over again, living in a monastery, to the point where often we don't think about it so much anymore. We hear it to the point where we automatically feel, I know it, we know it. Intellectually or with our memory, we know it. So we can actually delude ourselves and we know that, don't need to consider that anymore. But of course we haven't yet known it with our hearts so if we put it aside because we feel we, we can remember, we know the Dhamma already, we've heard it enough, then the danger is that we just stick with the, the words again. I know the words, but we haven't really penetrated them, to, haven't penetrated to the truth. So we keep having to go back to the basics of practice and this is why we have the teaching over and over again to go back to developing just basic mindful awareness of this body and mind from moment to moment through our day and use that mindful awareness as a basis for examining the truth of our experience, contemplating so that we can actually really get to know these words of the Pariyati, the Dhamma that we've heard as an experience, really know and understand and see for ourselves. We don't have to go anywhere to do this The Dhamma is Sanditiko, it's apparent here and now. So this body and mind is right here and now. The way we feel, the way we think, the way we are conscious, the way we perceive and remember things is here right now. 
this body, physical body is here right now. So we don't have to go anywhere to investigate truth. We just have to learn to turn our attention back to ourselves. This body, this mind, and start observing and learning from our own experience the way it is. Often when we practice then, we're having to practice in a a repetitive way. So this requires a lot of effort and continued effort. And this is where that commitment and keep coming back to the basis of our commitment to the practice is essential. to bring up that effort, to be willing to keep coming back to developing basic awareness and looking, investigating, using the teachings that we've heard. It's all right to do it once in a one one meditation session or in one meditation retreat, but to do it over and over again in the life of a samana, monastic requires this commitment and effort and patience but like anything in life if you keep doing that then little by little you'll start to get better at it it's a skill in learning to bring up awareness learning to look at truth the way your body and mind is and to understand more deeply what what causes suffering for me how is suffering arising to break through some of the delusions that we've been carrying around requires this commitment and this continued effort One way they talk about that commitment is quality of nekama, renunciation. You come into a monastery, the only way you can really live in a monastery is with a sense of renunciation, meaning being willing to give up various sense pleasures, experiences of the world that we perhaps are more used to in the lay life in order to pursue the truth and the higher happiness, the higher peace that will come through that understanding. Pretty much impossible to live successfully and happily in a monastery without nekama, this quality of renunciation.
they're difficult to develop even just peace in meditation without nekama. So it has to be that willingness to set aside craving and attachments in the sort of the pursuit of the worldly sense pleasures, all the different sense objects we can experience with this body and mind. When you come into the monastery, we we have to make that commitment at least clear to ourselves that we're willing to have a go, however difficult it may be. Trusting in the fact that the Buddha and all the other enlightened teachers and practitioners since then, right down to this present day, have practiced in this way, being willing to set aside one form of pleasure and happiness in, a, in the effort to develop something higher and attain something higher. And they've done that and achieved it. And this is a living tradition, so it's not that we're following some ideal about how they might have lived in the past and sort of hoping that we can somehow recreate something. This is a living tradition, a living practice of Dhamma Vinaya. So there are living beings at this very moment all over the world maybe not in large numbers, but they are there practicing renunciation in this way. Even if a large number of people in the world don't understand why, what the purpose of it is, there are those who do see the value of it. They have enough awareness of themselves, of the way life is, They've heard the teachings, they can see this, this might work, this might truly need to be a basis for deepening one's understanding of things. And they can appreciate the value of nekama, renunciation. So we can draw inspiration and support from that, the fact that we're part of a living Sangha community of renunciation, renunciance, not just here but around the world. But still, we have to go back to our own personal commitments and ask ourselves, am I willing to give it a go to practice? Because we take on the Vinaya, the training, the meditation, the whole path, we take it on voluntarily, so it's only up to us really to make that decision. As the Buddha pointed out, really we're not having to renounce anything because all those sense objects and things that we formerly and even currently have attached to and crave for don't really have any abiding essence anyway. They're just impermanent, unsatisfactory and they don't belong to us or anybody else. 
So actually there's nothing really there to give up in the first place. But we are coming from our background of delusion and not understanding truth and this is why we've suffered so long. So the mind tricks us and still feels that there is something that we're giving up and so it clings on and that's why we experience some pain and suffering when we come into the monastery. We have all our old memories, old ways of thinking, habits, ways of speaking, ways of acting that are still there, keep coming up in our personality, the way we are, our behavior and so on. So we have to work with this, appreciate that it will take time to see through some of the delusions and some of this old karma that's affecting us. But we can see that that any pain or difficulty or suffering that we do encounter as we're learning the Dhamma and then putting it into practice in our daily life is that kind of pain or dukkha that is for the ending of dukkha. It's for something better. It's not without purpose. It's not meaningless. Different from a lot of other kinds of suffering in in, the, in, the, in our lives, in the world. The suffering of a practitioner is actually something that leads on to something very good. Of course it requires that, again, that commitment and that patience, willing to work with oneself. And then using wisdom, of course, using our own intelligence to turn around and look at our experience and teach ourselves what's going on. Use the Buddha's words and the words of the teachers and explain to ourselves in our own mind, in our own language, what is going on so that we understand that any difficulty we're going through is maybe just part of the practice and perhaps we'll pass away quite quickly once we understand the whole process. And we can use the Buddha's words to look at our experiences. When we come into the monastery we're challenged because suddenly there's no things around that we're used to clinging on to. We have very few entertainments. We don't get the, we don't have many possessions. We don't have many things to interest us. The lifestyle routine, very mundane, often very repetitive. Often the same, seeing the same people day after day, same experiences. 
So naturally, we'll see craving arise, craving for things that we like, that we haven't got, and then we feel separation. Just as we chant every day in the morning chanting, separation from all I love and like is assured. And that's the nature of life. And when you come into a monastery, you're experiencing that, you're seeing that close up. So you're seeing the effect on the mind. Hmm, I haven't got what I want. But this is craving, isn't it? This is this word craving, dunha, that the Buddha talked about. This is something we can start to recognize and become aware of in our own daily experience. In the beginning it might be just for basic material things, food and clothing, different kinds of material things, comfortable bed, place to stay, people, people that you like. Suddenly all these things are not there. We get arms food. And definition of arms food is that which is left over from the lay people. Meaning we've lost, when we come into the monastery, we've lost our power to choose our food other than what's left over from the lay people put on the table for us. We don't cook ourselves, we don't store food, we don't buy food, choose food, order food. We just have to accept what comes our way. That's nekama, that's Buddhist monasticism. But if you use it as a vehicle for training yourself, then you reflect on craving as it arises. So it might be just craving in the form of imagination, daydreaming about foods that one likes, hasn't had perhaps, expecting foods to come, hoping for them to come. Could be more than that, craving when it comes up often and we don't recognize it, we don't do anything about it. Well, it hardens, it hardens into attachment. Dhanha, pachaya, upadana. Upadana is clinging attachment. They say it's the hardening, the firming up of craving. So if you crave something over and over again, meaning you think about it, you desire it, want it, picture it in your mind, look at it when it's around, and so on, then that will become firmer and firmer in your character that you like that, you want that, you think that is good for you. So it becomes upadana, can just be a very deeply ingrained habit and also be a view, a viewpoint and this thing is good for me. So it might be a view around food. This kind of food is good for me. It's the right food for me. And if one hasn't seen that happening, then that just becomes automatic in the mind, a way of thinking, this is good for me, this is right for me, maybe even I should have this, I'm entitled to this, because 
craving and upadana, these are delusion, forms of delusion conditioned by ignorance, meaning a lack of awareness, a lack of understanding of one's own mind. So any view conditioned by ignorance just becomes kind of automatic in the mind as an experience. We just think in that way without questioning maybe, without seeing what's going on. And maybe every time that thought comes up, we think, oh, that's right, that's correct for me. Say It could be a kind of food, that's correct for me, that's right for me, I want that. But this is also a cause of suffering. If you follow on the uh, process, the Buddha's teaching, craving conditions, attachment, attachment conditions, becoming becoming existence, meaning the, the state of mind becomes that way. Meaning we invest all our sense of self in that particular attachment. Becoming leads to jati, birth, old age, sickness and death. Sorrow, pain, grief, despair, all the different kinds of mental stress and suffering, all are conditioned by that craving and attachment. So say you have attachment to one particular foodstuff, perhaps, that if it's unaddressed, unrecognized, you're unaware of it, well, little by little it's conditioning this whole process of becoming birth. Pain, grief, sorrow, pain, grief, despair, the whole lot of it. So how does that happen? Well, you can see, say there's something you really have craving for. One hasn't been aware of that. Keeps conditioning one's way of thinking, one's attitude, one's view. Then as soon as maybe that thing is within one's grasp, but then it's taken away, one turns into anger frustration, more craving, craving for non-being or non-existence, meaning we don't want that particular experience, say of losing the thing that we want or like, or having it blocked from us, taken away from us. And the stronger the upadana, the stronger the attachment, the more that will happen. And the more it happens, the deeper the habit becomes ingrained in the mind. So the more suffering we experience. The more powerful the experience of the suffering. Maybe craving arises once, while there's a little bit of disappointment when one loses the thing that one craves or one can't get it. But if it happens over and over again, well, that experience becomes more and more powerful. So this is how this sense of self arises. Sense of me and mine, and this is the way I am, arises over and over again and can become very seems a very large, powerful experience in the mind and the body. 
We get emotions, we get feelings, emotions. Our body is conditioned by our mental state. So extreme greed or desire for something makes the body feel one way. Maybe it produces certain chemicals and hormones with expectation and desire. The frustration of a desire and attachment also leads to physical reactions we get. Other kinds of hormones come out when we're angry, disappointed, frustrated. So physically we're affected, mentally we're affected. Get emotional states of anger, negativity, on and on it goes, depending on how extreme the craving and attachment how often it's come up, how long it's been there in the mind. (coughs) However, through our study and practice of these teachings, we're also coming to be more aware of this process. And we can see that it is also a conditioned process, meaning that there are causes and conditions at work here And as we keep bringing up awareness of our own mind and directed to these various experiences of craving and attachment, we can see, well, it's possible to change that. If it wasn't possible to change that, then the Buddhist path wouldn't lead anywhere. Just would lead round in circles, like being caught in a maze or something just going round in circles and circles forever and ever but it does lead somewhere it can lead us out of this chain of cause and effect or this cycle of cause and result by bringing up mindful awareness at each point in the chain and reflecting with wisdom understanding and compassion compassion for oneself as one wishes to free oneself from suffering so a sense of well wishing goodwill to oneself compassion and a understanding that one is suffering and that it's correct to get oneself out of suffering this is the path then the eightfold path bringing it to bear in daily life Sila Samadhi Panya, mindful awareness and investigation of truth. <coughs> so when we apply mindfulness, well, we first of all just become aware of our own mind states, craving, for instance, and attachment, how it arises, what it's like, and the result of it, any mental movement that forms into emotional states, unhappiness, frustration, on and on it goes. We just become aware of it first. And often it's so powerful we can't really do much other than just watch it all appear, arise and appear before us. So our first line of practice is always to bring in precepts and rules.
levels of training. This is why the beginning of our training is always learning the Vinaya and undertaking to keep precepts and follow the Vinaya. Just this point, the fact that our mind under the influence of craving and attachment is so fast and powerful that with all the best intention in the world it's very difficult to stop it, change it. So we begin our Dhamma practice by agreeing with ourselves to keep precepts, five precepts, eight, ten, 227 precepts as a way to have some clear guidelines or principles of behavior that will help us to deal with this craving and attachment that affects us over and over again in our daily life. So we have rules of training to do with our conduct, what we say, what we do, understanding that when we do fall under the influence of craving and attachment, leading on to suffering, well, it can lead to unwholesome actions, body and speech, which create suffering for ourselves, for others, not in our interest, not in the interest of others, just creates and adds to the suffering of the world and only reinforces craving and attachment in itself. So when you act on craving, not just say observe it arising and passing away in your mind, but you actually act on it, it's reinforcing that habit. So we use the precepts to help at least slow the whole process down, quieten the process down and even stop it. So we have precepts regarding how we act, how we speak, how we speak. We train with those, we, we learn them, memorize them, remember them and then start using them as a way to bring up mindfulness in our daily life being mindful of precepts, of rules of training, ways of behavior, ways of conduct, over and over and over again, to begin to restrain craving and attachment from just running amok in our minds and causing ourselves and other people so much suffering. Puts a limit on it. We become more careful once you undertake to keep rules, follow rules. Although we know that the very craving and attachment won't like it at first. Nevertheless, we have the nekama, the willingness to set aside this obsession with craving and attachment. We're saying mm, craving and attachment is, doesn't seem to be very good for me, so I'm going to set it aside and follow the rules, follow the precepts. So you can, you can use them this way to give yourself a clear course of action in all the different situations we have as a way to just restrain this craving and attachment from going too wild, taking over too much. Of course it will still be there, but at least it's kept under 
guard now, under control through the practice of mindfulness of the precepts, mindfulness of the rules of training. So what happens then? It means it starts to turn our attention inwards as we restrain our actions, our speech. They start to become more peaceful, more restrained, more composed, more harmonious with the world around. Naturally, the attention turns inwards. The mind is directed more closely to look at craving and attachment as it's arising. To look at the mental formations, say the, in, the intentions, the volitions that are arising from moment to moment through our day. Whether we're meditating, whether we're performing different activities, whether we're falling asleep, whatever. Your mindfulness directs your awareness back to the mind over and over again. And we start checking ourselves. Am I keeping precepts? Am I following the rules of training here? Knowing that it's for our benefit and as part of the training that will help us. (coughs) So we keep checking in this way, going back. Have I done my duties? Have I done, performed them properly, correctly? Have I spoken, keeping to the precepts, acted according to the precepts, done everything that I should have done in the proper way, and so on? And this naturally draws our attention back to the very mind itself and to mental formations, you know, our thoughts and our intentions as they are arising. We start to check them. And you necessarily start to practice right effort. Samawayama, you necessarily start to weed out and prevent the unwholesome intentions fed by craving and attachment from spilling out into speech action. They're kind of held in check. That holding in check is as if, you know, you say you're a lay person is weeding grass. It's like they put their hand on the grass, a bunch of grass. Then they can pull the grass up once they've got their hand grasped on it. So the grasping of the hand is putting mindfulness, mindfully attending to one's own mental formations. One's thoughts, one's intentions, as they're coming up, one starts to hold one's attention right there as thoughts arise. And then one can abandon them when one recognizes, oh, this one will lead me to break my precept. This is coming from craving attachment. We can see that. We hold our attention there, we uproot it, we pull it up like a weed and throw it away like a weed, something that's just rubbish, something that's not not wanted. We don't want to keep it in the mind, don't need to hold on to it, so we just throw it aside. But done mindfully, carefully, with a sense of 
compassion for oneself, knowing that that weed is a weed. It's something that's not in our best interest. It's not for our benefit. It's not good for us. It's not the path that leads to peace and happiness. Therefore, I'll throw it away. One mindfully starts to throw out the unwholesome negative intentions fed by craving and attachment, using the precepts as a sort of a guideline to do this. As you internalize that practice and bring the mind in, your mind's attention inwards more and more, then gradually the precepts just become normal and one doesn't have to think about them so much anymore. It's just looking more at unwholesome craving and attachment arising and seeing it for what it is and starting to let go of it. So that process becomes ever more and more refined. And maybe in the beginning it's just so if it is craving, say, for a kind of food, well, it's, it's just the preventing oneself, say, maybe grabbing that food or finding some way to get that food physically going for it. That would be using the precept. One just stops that, doesn't move one's hand, say, or doesn't let one's eyes go and dwell on that thing that one wants, for instance. But as one gets used to doing that, then it just becomes a habit. One doesn't have to worry about a hand grabbing or the eyes going and ogling, googling at something. Then it's just mental. It's just the thoughts arising, the fantasies, the imagination, desire arising on a mental level. It could be any time, day and night, but one just starts mindfully turning and to watch these intentions. And if one's not going to act on them, there really isn't anywhere for them to go other than to just arise and pass away. And the more we can establish that awareness in the mind, we can just see craving arises and passes away. And that's what craving is, it's just a function of mind, it's an activity, it's just mental formations coming up, going away. Once one has established sila and mindfulness and then turns the mind to examine the truth of these things, it's just moods, emotions, thoughts, desires arising, passing away. So this is what we Turning the attention inwards and looking at truth brings us to see. It's the actual practice of vipassana, seeing insight into the impermanent nature of a mental state, a craving and attachment. And if something is seen in that way, you keep seeing something just arising, passing away, well, naturally the mind starts to tire of clinging onto it. You can see it hasn't got any real essence in itself. It's just a mental state, a mood comes and goes, 
comes up, goes away. One starts to tire of following after it. One doesn't give it so much importance, so much interest. So little by little it comes up less and less, less and less powerfully, little by little, one's perception changes about that particular craving, the object of that craving. Little by little it fades away and it's not so important anymore. It doesn't even, doesn't change the fact maybe that object still brings pleasurable feeling, sensation, a sense of satisfaction when consumed or when one experiences it. There may still be pleasure there, but the grasping at it and the attachment that leads to suffering and all the different kinds of suffering, that fades away from the mind. And that's an experience probably all of us can practice and experience and see and know and understand the truth of quite quickly in the monastic life. But if it's done with true mindfulness and true insight, well, it always leads to a sense of peace arising. As many teachers say, when one, what, what is wisdom, true wisdom? It's, wis, it's that way of thinking, using the mind, that frees you from suffering and brings the mind to peace. So this is how the Buddha directed us to train say, from the outside inwards, examining the truth of what leads to suffering. And once that becomes clear to the mind, then you start naturally wanting to remove it. And ever going into more, de- more, more detail, you could say, or deep, on deeper levels, seeing the truth of things all that the mind grasps at and these attachments starts to be known as it is. In short, the five candors, we start to see them as, as they are. The physical side, the mental side of existence is just that much. Just physical, mental phenomena arising, passing away, just that much. If you keep, if you're willing to commit to the practice and keep observing like this, going inwards, little by little by little, then these truths start to just become more and more obvious to the mind, and the mind naturally inclines to more peace, more refined states of peace. Buddha pointed out that we can only really do this when the mind is feeling stable, secure, calm. So the flavor of the practice is always to bring the mind to a sense of stillness and calm so that it can look and see clearly these truths that are there to be seen. This is why we have to 
practice in the correct way. We have, we have no choice, but we have to be willing to develop this nekama, give up some of our worldly desires and ambitions and attachments so that we can follow the precepts and then turn the mind to the Dhamma, meaning turn the mind to the truth rather than always getting obsessed with the objects of craving and attachment and the experiences that they bring with them. We have to keep bringing the mind to a sense of calm and that's where mindful awareness brought up over and over again, it does that. The more mindful we are of our precepts, of our meditation objects, and then of the Dhamma, of the the truth of an dukkha anatta, then you're, you're bringing your mind to a sense of calm so it can actually see the way things are and accept the way things are without fighting against it or resisting it. You notice when we do suffer, you know, we can't get out of that suffering or solve it because the mind isn't peaceful enough. We're actually indulging in the state of suffering or the experience of suffering, physical pain, mental pain, whatever. We don't have enough mindfulness to sort of step back and look at it as it is. We just become that way. But as soon as we establish mindfulness in any situation where suffering is arising, then it changes the whole outlook on it. And suffering just becomes suffering. But the sense of ownership, me and mine, and the, the, way, the way the mind just becomes that way, changes, starts to separate, go back from it. So there's a sense of release and happiness that comes from that. One of the qualities that the continued presence of mindful awareness brings to the mind is a sense of spaciousness, emptiness, because the sense of self that is identifying with the suffering and clinging to the suffering so much fades away then the mind seems to be very empty and free and spacious. So then, actually, its ability to endure even more kinds of pain and suffering improves, increases. Its ability to relate to other people's suffering increases as well. So just the basic compassion of the mind develops. You see, when we feel most stressed, most the sense of suffering is strongest. Mm-hmm. The mindfulness is it is it is at its weakest. Mm-hmm. 
the mind seems very narrow, very caught up, bound up with suffering, not at all spacious or free or empty. But any time you bring mindful awareness to a bear or to bear on some experience, immediately there's a sense of release or letting go and the mind starts to come back. And something that seemed unbearable or difficult to bear with becomes much more bearable, maybe quite easy to bear with. Whether it could be just pain in the body when you're sitting meditation for a long time, but you're willing to keep establishing mindfulness of it on your object, just aware of the pain coming up and going away. After a while one can reach a point where all the pain seems to just disappear or the mind seems so much more subtle that it doesn't bother it anymore. There's enough space in the mind to cope with the physical pain not be bothered by it, not be affected by it. Similarly with the mental pain and the different experiences of separation and disappointment and frustration and so on that we all experience as human beings. The mind can cope with it or bear with it quite easily without getting upset or attaching to it, just knows it's just dukkha, dukkha arising, dukkha passing away. So then of course the mind becomes free, doesn't need to complain about anything, doesn't have any problems with anything, doesn't create any problems out of anything, just free, peaceful, knowing the way things are. So I'll leave these words with you for your contemplation tonight. Mm. You can carry on sitting for a little bit longer. Mm.